happy Mother's Day. I know many of you came uh, expecting a Mother's Day sermon today. Um, most of you are aware that I um, unexpectedly lost my mom about six weeks ago, and so if I tried to preach a Mother's Day sermon today, uh, one of two things would happen. Either I would talk about my mom for 45 minutes, and it would just not be appropriate um, for church. The other thing that might happen is I would cry for about 10 minutes until someone finally pulled me off stage. And so, um, moms, I know you're expecting a Mother's Day sermon today. Um, let me just say, moms, we love you, and uh, maybe next year you'll get one. So I think it is safe to say that selfies are all the rage in our culture. I remember five or six years ago being in Ireland, and I saw for the first time selfie sticks, these metal rods where you can place the phone on the end of the rod and take selfies. Um, any number of places, you know, back in my day, we had to ask someone to take the picture with my phone or the camera and just hope they didn't run off and steal it, um, but now they have selfie sticks, and so you can take pictures of yourself anywhere, and the purpose of these pictures is not so that the individual can go back to their phone and they can scroll through the pictures and go, oh, that's when I was in Europe, or that's when I was in Hawaii, or wherever they were traveling. The purpose of the pictures is to take those pictures and to post them on social media so all their friends can see, hey, this was me in front of the White House, or this was me in front of the Colosseum in Rome, or this was me wherever they happen to be. And so they take these selfies so the whole world can see about their travels. And most of the time, that is fine. Most of the time, go ahead and take the selfie. However, there are sometimes you just need to take the picture without putting yourself in it. There are times that the selfie is inappropriate. You can actually Google selfies at serious places and you can find a number of these examples. I will give you a couple here. First, a thumbs up selfie at the Holocaust Memorial. Not a good idea. And the thumbs up only adds to the irreverence of the act. You don't take a selfie smiling at the Holocaust Memorial. As well, you do not take a smiling selfie at Auschwitz. It's just not appropriate. It's irreverent. These pictures illustrate a truth that we all know. In our culture, there are certain places that, for lack of a better word, they are considered to be sacred. And there are appropriate ways to act at those places. You do not throw a party at the Vietnam Memorial. You do not sing and dance as you walk through the Pearl Harbor Museum. And you don't take a smiling selfie at a concentration camp. It's just not right. Here's why I bring this up. Today we are continuing our series called Sins and Stones, covering the life of King David, who is the second king over Israel. He lived about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Christ. And a couple of weeks ago we saw David finally ascend to the throne over Israel. A promise had been made 15 years earlier uh, when he was about 15 years old. At 30 years of age, he finally takes over the throne. And one of his first acts as king is to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was the most sacred holiest of items among the Israelite people. And David determines, as we will see today, that the Ark needs to come to Jerusalem. However, David will discover 
that just as there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to act in certain places in our world, there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to handle the Ark of the Covenant. So if you've got a Bible with you, we will look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is in your Old Testament. And we will start with verse 1. Here's what we read. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Okay, pause there for a moment. If you grew up in church, you are likely familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen the first Indiana Jones movie, you are likely familiar with the Hollywood version of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, again, was the holiest, most sacred item in Jewish life. It was a box about four feet wide, two and a half feet tall, two and a half feet deep, covered in pure gold, and on the top sat these cherubim, these angelic figures, who faced one another, faced down towards the ark. The lid of the ark was called the mercy seat of God. And in the average Israelite mindset, that is where God sat. They would say God was everywhere, of course, but if you want to know where God really is, right there on top of the ark. Inside the ark, there were three items. Uh, The first item inside the ark, Uh, was the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments represented God's protection over his people. The Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses was God's way of saying to the people of Israel, here is how you should live. I created you. I know how you operate best. Here's how life will go better for you. Follow these prescribed rules And you will live a life that is much better than if you do not follow these rules. And so the Ten Commandments were representative of God's protection. The other item was a pot of manna, which represented God's provision. When the Israelites left Egypt and they were headed towards the promised land, they were in the desert and they were hungry, they cried out to God, and God provided manna from heaven, this flat bread, this flaky substance that provided nourishment for the Israelites every day. This manna would fall and they would be provided for. And so the pot of manna inside the ark was to remind them that our God provides what we need. So God's protection, God's provision, and the third item in the ark was the rod of Aaron, which represented God's redemption. Aaron was Moses' brother. Aaron was also a priest. And at a certain point, there was a debate about who would rule over Israel. Who would be in charge of all of the worship of Israel? Would it be Aaron? Would it be the priest? Or would it be other leaders? And so they brought all the rods of these leaders. A rod represented authority. They brought all of these rods and they asked God, give us a sign. Who should lead us? And the rod of Aaron bloomed. Flowers appeared on it. And so they knew from that sign from God that Aaron was to lead, that future priests were to lead. Later on in the New Testament... The church understood that that rod of Aaron actually represented God's redemption. 
that our God is a God who takes things that are dead and he makes them alive. And so his son, Jesus Christ, was dead in the tomb. God raised him from the dead. God takes us when we are spiritually dead and makes us alive and we have the promise of eternal life, of the resurrection. Our God takes things that are dead and he redeems those and makes them alive. So inside the ark, God's protection, God's provision, God's redemption represented in these three items. Again, this was the holiest item of the Israelites. For 1,500 years, this was where they looked to to say that is where God sits. 15 centuries, they said this is where God sits. In 70 A.D., the ark was most likely destroyed when the Romans invaded Jerusalem, they leveled Jerusalem, they burned the temple, and most likely, at that point, the ark was destroyed by the Romans. However, someone could have grabbed the ark, it could have escaped, gone out into the desert, maybe into Jordan, somewhere like that, placed inside a pit full of snakes, and that's where it sits today, waiting on some you know, professor who has a side job as an archaeologist to go find it. We don't know. The ark could be lost, but most likely the ark of the covenant was destroyed. For 1,500 years, this was the, the item that represented God's presence among the Israelites. So the question is, why is David having to get the ark to Jerusalem? Why isn't the ark in the tabernacle, where it normally sat, inside the Holy of Holies. Later it would sit in the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. Why is the ark not where it's supposed to be? You have to go back 20 years before this. The Israelites foolishly decided to take the ark into a battle against the Philistines. They were nervous about this battle, and they wanted to take the ark as a good luck charm into battle like a lucky rabbit's foot hey we've got God with us we're going to win the battle well God was not going to be used like that and so they battle against the Philistines they lose to the Philistines the Philistines in the process capture the Ark of the Covenant and they take the Ark of the Covenant back to a town in Philistine territory and then they take the Ark and they place it inside the temple to their God Dagon Ark of the Covenant in the temple to their God. The priests go into the temple the next morning and the statue inside the temple of Dagon is face down in front of the ark. The priests say, well, this, this isn't good. Our God in front of the ark face down, that's not good. They set the statue back upright in the temple. The next day they come in and again, the statue of Dagon face down in front of the ark, but this time his head and hands are broken off. And they said, this, this is not good at all. And about the time they're scratching their heads, trying to figure out what to do with the statue to their god, Dagon, everybody in this Philistine town suddenly comes down with a really bad case of hemorrhoids. And you think I'm making this up. You people need to read your Bible. <laughs> there are incredibly interesting stories in here. And that's what happened. Everyone in the town has this issue, and they're thinking, we, we've got to do something, and they figure out that the ark is causing all of these problems. So the Philistines take the ark, and they place it on a cart. They then hook oxen to the cart, and they send the cart with the oxen back into Israel's territory. 
it arrives at the house of a man named Abinadab, and that's where the ark stays for the next 20 years. David then moves into the castle, into Jerusalem, and he says the ark needs to be here in the capital city. So David gets together 30,000 men from all the different tribes of Israel. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the fact that Israel, up until this point, in large measure, had operated as 12 different tribes. David unified Israel, and here was an act where he wanted to make sure that this was not just one tribe acting. This was a national effort. So select troops from every tribe come with him, 30,000, on this mission to go to this town called Bala, about 10 miles from Jerusalem, to go to the house of Abinadab to get the ark and to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. It was going to be a wonderful day of celebration as they got the ark and God himself returned to Jerusalem. Verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. Okay, so the Israelites are excited. It's a big day. 30,000 troops. Everyone's there. King David himself is there. This is the big day. It's only 10 miles to get from Bala to Jerusalem. We're going to make this a festive occasion. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to buy a brand new cart on which to place the ark to carry it to Jerusalem. Great idea, right? Let's get a brand new, never-before-used cart. We'll put the ark on that, and we will transport it to Jerusalem. Such a wonderful idea, except that's not how the ark was supposed to be transported. Exodus chapter 25 gives very specific instructions on how the ark was to be carried. There were rings on the four different corners of the ark. And those rings were there for a purpose. Poles were to be placed through the rings. And then the priests of God were to carry the ark with the poles through the rings so that the ark itself was never actually touched. And you may think, well, big deal. What does it matter how the ark was actually carried? As long as it got from point A to point B, did it really matter whether it was poles through rings or on a cart? What was the big deal? Think about in ancient times how people traveled. Or think about how those who were of royal status traveled. Those who had means. The wealthy traveled. Think about movies where you've seen ancient Rome portrayed, or maybe ancient Egypt, how was someone who was a senator or maybe a king or a queen, how were they transported? Normally it was in what are called litters. You've seen these before. You would have slaves with poles carrying the litter, and someone would be inside the, the carriage that's on top of the poles, and they would be carried from point A to point B in this litter. If you were an average citizen living back then and you saw someone traveling this way, you would say, there goes someone of means. There is someone who is important. They have some sort of royal status. They're being carried in that litter. Carts were used to carry cargo, dishes, pots, potatoes. You did not carry people in carts. You carried cargo in carts. And the Israelites here decide 
They're going to take the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God himself, seated on the mercy seat, and they were going to carry God for 10 miles like they were carrying a crate of chickens from Bala back to Jerusalem. Not the way that it was prescribed for the Ark to be carried. Now here's the question. Why did the Israelites do this? Why did they place the ark on a cart even though they knew what was prescribed by God as the way to carry the ark? I think it was because they understood, they knew that the Philistines had placed the ark on a cart 20 years earlier to transport the cart from Philistine territory back into Israel. The Israelites knew this And they knew that the ark had arrived safely in their territory in Israel. So if it was good enough for the Philistines to put the ark on a cart, then I guess we can do the same. Here's the problem. The Philistines were not God's people. They were not part of God's covenant community. As my grandmother would have said, they didn't know no better because they weren't raised right. The Israelites knew better. They had God's law. They understood how the ark was to be carried. And to carry it on a cart like the Philistines did, did not honor God. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 5. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, which was a string instrument, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. So get the picture. The ark is on a cart, and all of Israel, David, all of his attendants, 30,000 soldiers, they are celebrating. They are excited. They are passionate. There is a lot of energy, but they are absolutely wrong in the way they're going about it. Meaning, you can be very zealous about something and absolutely wrong in what you're doing. Uh, David Guzik, who is uh, a scholar and has an online commentary, writes this about this scene. He says, the atmosphere was joyful, exciting, and engaging. The problem was that none of it pleased God because it was all in disobedience to his word. We are often tempted to judge a worship experience by how it makes us feel. But when we realize that worship is about pleasing God, we are driven to His Word so we can know how He wants to be worshipped. It is hard to receive it in our consumer-oriented culture, but worship isn't all about what pleases us. It's about what pleases God. So David, all his men, they're excited. There's a lot of passion in their worship. And suddenly, everything starts to go really, really south. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, stop there for a moment. We have no idea if Nakan was the name of a village or some community or the name of an individual who owned the land. We have no idea. A threshing floor was where they separated the wheat, uh, um, the grain from the wheat. It was a raised, smooth floor. 
And so they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. So they're walking along. The oxen and the cart hit this raised threshing floor. The cart um, then bumps as it hits this threshing floor. The ark begins to wobble and Uzzah reaches out to balance the ark to keep it from falling on the floor. Verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. We read this story, and we think, wait a second. Doesn't that seem a little harsh? The oxen are going along. The ark is on the cart. Uzzah's walking beside it. The ark begins to wobble on the cart. It's about to fall on the ground, and all Uzzah does is reach out his hand to steady the ark, to keep it from falling on the ground. But the moment the flesh of his hand hits the gold side of that ark, his heart stops beating, and Uzzah falls dead. It seems harsh to us, but notice that the author here calls it an irreverent act. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that, day, uh, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So notice David had two emotions in the aftermath of this. The first was anger. He's mad. Who's he mad at? Himself for not doing it the right way? Is he mad at God? Is he just mad at the situation? Why is David upset? Here's where I can identify with David. So many times I do what I know is wrong, and then life blows up in my face, and I get angry. Why am I angry? I should have known. God said, do it this way, and I'm not following what God said to do, and I'm upset. I'm angry. If I just do what God said to do, then the situation wouldn't have happened. The second emotion that David experiences is fear. He's afraid. He says, okay, this has happened. How can I cover the rest of this distance, 10 miles from where the ark is now to Jerusalem? And David kind of throws up his hands like, well, the situation is hopeless. We'll never be able to get the ark back to Jerusalem. Except it's not rocket science. David, it's clear how the ark is to be carried. You're not following God's law and you're kind of throwing up your hands like it's, like it's just hopeless. Just follow what God said to do, which is exactly what we see in the second half of the chapter. And finally, this section ends with this. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So this part of the passage just concludes with David pushing the pause button and saying, okay, we've got to take a break. I need to sort of gather my thoughts. We've got to figure out a plan going forward. Let's take the ark. We're going to place it in this house, and then we will figure out what to do next. Okay, so how does this apply to us? This 3,000-year-old story, what does it mean for us today? Let me give you two things I think are very clear in this passage. Number one, 
my approach to God must be in the right way. So I think most of us look at a passage like this and we think, you know, God prescribed this very specific way for the ark to be carried, and honestly, it seems a little bit OCD. I I mean, you look at the story here, and it seemed like the Israelites had the right intentions, and even though they did not get every detail right, their hearts were in the right place, and so God's judgment seems just a little bit harsh to us. When I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, I had a friend there who worked for the Charlotte Fire Department, and he was also part of the fire department's hazmat unit. I can remember him wearing this t-shirt all the time, and it would say, Charlotte Hazmat Unit, and on the back it would say, if you see me running, try to keep up. I think that's right. You see that guy running, you want to be wherever he is, not whatever he's running from. As a member of the hazmat unit, he received very specific training on protocols that were to be followed if there was a chemical spill or some sort of explosive situation, they would go into that situation and they would know exactly what to do. If there was a bomb, they would call in an individual who had a very specific skill set and knew what to do to be able to, to bring safety to that situation. Here's what his unit did not do. They did not say, well, let's just go into the situation and we'll try our best. We'll just, you know, as long as our intentions are right, as long as we want to make the situation safe, it doesn't really matter how we go about it as long as our intentions are right. They they never said that. In fact, any hazmat unit that said that would have to be quickly replaced because they would all be dead. I mean, that is not the way a hazmat unit approaches a situation. And in most situations in life, we want people to be detail-oriented. We want them to be a little bit OCD. If you're facing heart surgery, you want that cardiovascular surgeon to be a little bit OCD. You do not want a surgeon who comes in and says, well, my intentions are right. I mean, I might not go through the right procedure, but... You know, my intentions are good, and as long as my heart is right, yours will be as well. You don't want a guy who's going to say that. You want a guy who's going to follow a very prescribed formula to make sure that the surgery is successful. In most areas of life, we understand this. When it comes to following Christ, though, There is this false notion out there that it's all about how we feel and that supersedes what God has prescribed for us to do. I want to be careful here. I know this is very delicate. But as many of you are aware, over the last decade or so, many churches in our nation have decided to change their stated belief on marriage. For 2,000 years, Orthodox Christianity has said that marriage is between one man and one woman. For many denominations or most denominations in our country, for two to three hundred years, they have said that marriage is between one man and one woman. For some of these churches that have changed their stated beliefs, for some of them it's been hundreds a couple hundred years that they have said that we believe that marriage is now is between one man and one woman. 
And now they have changed their stated belief to say that same-sex marriage is morally acceptable and that our ministers can perform these ceremonies and that in our worship centers, these ceremonies can be performed. Now, since the Bible has not changed, I assume that those beliefs have changed in large part because the culture around us has changed their stated beliefs on this particular issue. And on that, I agree with them. There is no doubt, no question at all, that our culture has certainly changed their beliefs on that. All you have to do is watch television. Just, just get, get your iPad out, go to some news site. It is very clear that our culture has changed about that, on that particular issue. And I'll be honest with you. That doesn't particularly bother me any more than it bothers me that Philistines would take an ark and they'd put it on a cart rather than following a prescribed formula. When the world acts like the world, it should not surprise us. When non-Christians act like non-Christians, that should not particularly upset or surprise us. However, the church, the church the church following what the world says is right should bother us because we are called to be different from the culture around us. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. None of us in this room are perfect. We all sin, including the person on the platform. But there is a difference between saying, hey, we all sin, none of us are perfect, and we're no longer calling this thing that God calls a sin a sin. I'll give you an example. If I tell you a lie and you call me out on that lie and I apologize to you, then you need to understand that I'm not perfect and the issue needs to be over and you don't need to keep beating me up about that lie. I said I'm sorry, we need to move on. However, if I lie to you and you come to me and you call me out on that lie and I say to you, oh no, 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 we're not calling that a sin anymore. Lying's no longer a sin. You can't call me out on that. If I do that, then we've got a real issue. For the church to say that we are changing our beliefs on marriage to reflect the beliefs of the culture around us is essentially the church saying to God, hey, we know that you prescribed for the ark to be carried in this way, but the culture around us is using carts, and we don't care what you say, we'd rather use carts to transport the ark. And that is not what the church is called to do. So the first thing is, is that our approach to God must be in the right way. The second thing is, is that my, my approach to God must be with the right heart. The, the dramatic scene in this passage is when Uzzah reaches out to balance the ark, touches the ark, and instantly dies. And we read a passage like that and we think, wait a second, Uzzah was just trying to help why did God do this? Why did Uzzah die? And although it's not specifically stated in the text, I think we can make a pretty good guess. We know that the Ark of the Covenant was in Uzzah's home for 20 years. We don't know how old Uzzah was when the Ark came in, but his father is mentioned in the passage. It very well could have been that the Ark of the Covenant was in his home since he was a toddler. And while for 15 centuries the ark was the holiest relic of the Israelites, placed in the Holy of Holies where only 
the high priest could go once a year, even though the ark was this representation of the presence of God and no one was to touch the ark, even though it was this holy relic, for Uzzah, it was a coffee table. It was a piece of furniture. He got up in the morning, the ark was there. He went out to the fields, he came back, the ark was there. He sat down for dinner, the ark was there. He went to bed at night, the ark was there. Uzzah saw the ark every single day. And although it was meant to be this holy relic, for Uzzah, eh, it's just the ark. And I know God said not to touch it, but I've been around the ark for 20 years now. And it's the oxen stumble and the ark starts to wobble. And I feel complete freedom to reach out and to balance the ark. And although we don't know for 100% what was in his heart, we know that that was a very casual, irreverent act. Almost like someone giving a thumbs up at a concentration camp. I think this is a danger for us today as well. We have tremendous access to the gospel. Think about it, in the history of Christianity, for the first 1,600 years, the vast majority of people did not have access to a Bible. You lived in a village, there might be one Bible in that village located in the church. There's a good chance that Bible was in Latin, and you couldn't read it even if you had access to it. For the next 200 years, people did have Bibles in their language, but not everybody. You would have to go to someone else to be able to read that Bible. Think about today. We have Bibles in every single home, and if you don't have the translation that does it for you, just get online and you can read every translation available to man. We have the Bible everywhere, but we don't read it. Not really interested in it. Think about access to church and worship. For hundreds and hundreds of years, there was one church in your village, and you would go to that particular church on a Sunday morning, and if you didn't go to that church, if you missed it, you didn't go for another week. And if you didn't like that church, and you didn't like what the preacher said, and you didn't like the style of music, tough. It was too hard to get to another church. Think about in our day. There is a buffet of churches that you can choose from. And if you don't like my preaching, there are plenty of other guys out there. You don't like the music, there's plenty of other styles of music. You can go to any church you want to go to. We don't go. We go at Christmas and at Easter, the high holidays. We go when there's nothing else going on. We'll go in the winter because it's cold outside and we can't go do anything else. We just, we approach it with such a casual heart. Think about access to sermons. For hundreds of years, people would go, They would hear a sermon. That was the only sermon for the week. That was it. Now you have access to countless and countless sermons online. You can go on, you can listen to sermons for days. There are enough sermons online that if you took them and you stretched them all out from end to end, there would be enough to go from earth to Mars and back with enough left over to take a victory lap around Hawaii. We have sermons for days and days and days. People shrug their shoulders, they don't care. And think about in our evangelical culture, let's just be honest. We will defend, defend, defend the inerrancy of the Word of God, but we don't read it. We will defend a coach's right to pray at the 50-yard line, but we will fail to pray. We will defend our constitutional right to gather and worship, 
and we will go occasionally to worship. Why is this? It's because much like Uzzah with the ark, we've been around Jesus since we were little. Jesus has always been there. He's there when I need him. If, if something happens, if life turns hard, I can go to Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. He's been hanging out in my house forever. I've known him forever. And we approach Jesus with this casual, irreverent heart. God, forgive us. Forgive us for approaching the gospel with a heart of Uzzah.